trust and trusting Scripture is intensely personal. Where you trust is really important, and where you do not trust is equally insightful. And so as we engage on this six-week journey together in learning how to be resilient disciples as we listen, love, and lead this year, learning how to trust the words of this book, the words of this book, more importantly, the author of this book, is not something for only Christian people. It is something that every Canadian wrestles with, the centrality and the words and the person in this book. We have now, we're in week three of it, and first and foremost, the Bible is a story about God. And we all start faith with faith being about us, our needs, our wants, our desires, our questions, our opinions, our convictions, our guilt, what we want to see, what we are not seeing. So in other words, we all come to faith from this place of need. God, we need you to do something in our life. Primarily, we need you to save us, to be the leader, the Lord of our lives. And we start there. But I pray that you don't stay there because if you're a follower of Jesus and you think that this book is all about you, then you're going to find yourself quite frustrated in your following Jesus because it's primarily a story about God first and foremost. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, us. In the beginning, God, it's primarily a story about God. And then it is this unfolding story of trust. Why do we even have a book with all of these sayings from God, all these teachings from God. Why do we even have it? Because in Exodus chapter 17, God himself, Yahweh, says to Moses, I want you to write all of this down. God, he says, in a book, so that Joshua may know what I have done in your life, what I have told you, what I have taught you. As Corey just eloquently, and I honor you, Corey, for making a Jesus-sized difference in the lives of kids. And men, we need more Corey's in the house. And that's not an announcement. That is a call as deep comes to deep for some of you. It is a step of surrender and obedience. But as Corey simply said, and he read the scripture in Deuteronomy, why is it that we as families and individuals write things down? It is so that the next generation doesn't have to relearn everything that we have taken our lives to learn. That they can start where we ended and they can begin to build from there. It's not so that we can lord it over them as a weapon, as a thing to bash people about. It's not what it's about. It is literally then, this is who God is, and may you in your journey and in your generation, may you come to know the same God that I have known in my life and my generation. It is a book about God. It is a book about following ultimately into the way of Jesus. And I don't use this example to exclude you if you're single, not whatsoever. I, I do so with tenderness, but I do so for what it illustrates. Again, not to include or exclude. It's not about my relational status. It's literally just an example that when, you know, 27 years ago on August the 5th, when I married the love of my life, who I am more in love with today than I was 27 years ago, you know what I willingly did then that I wholeheartedly willingly do today? is I surrender myself to vows of exclusivity. When I married Lori, I said words like this, for better or worse. Now, truthfully, all I really wanted was better. <laughs> for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish, not myself, her, until death do us part, according to God's holy law. And this is my solemn 
vow. And I said it and I meant it. And what it meant was that I was of my free will, not manipulated, not coerced, not because my parents did, of my free will, I was entering into an earthly covenant with someone who was totally different from me. And then from love, I vow myself to live differently in the world from a place of exclusivity. When you and I follow Jesus from love, from love, we come under the authority of what Jesus says in this book, what God says in this book, not from law, but from covenant, from love. From a, and yeah, free of my own free will, giving my life to Jesus means that other things in my life that attempt to become Lord become conflict with he who is Lord. Religion cannot do this. It's all about rules and regulations. You can come to this church your whole life, but this book is ultimately a love story from God to you, to me. Today we want to look at who is the hero of the Bible, and I imagine you may already know the answer. In fact, if you don't, I'll give you a hint of where we're going. It's two guesses. One guess is Jesus. The other guess is Jesus, okay? Two guesses. So I, I know it's not a trick question. Because some of you, like, if, I, if the hero of the Bible was like, no, you're wrong. It's not Jesus. It was Job. You know, good try. Uh, you would have been like, um, excuse me, time out. So I know that you know the already answer, but the reason why is insightful. And what is a hero? Well, if you Google what is a hero, you're going to find a list of qualities, characteristics, values, ideals, which makes one heroic. You'll read about courage and humility and patience and strength. And no matter which links you click when you Google what is a hero, yeah, you're going to see differences for sure, but there's going to be a common denominator, which is this. Anybody who acts heroically or is a hero in a situation places themselves or places, excuse me, others before themselves. It doesn't matter what you click, what you read. At some point, this is going to be the common denominator that a hero places others before themselves. This is what they do, whether it's situationally, whether it's an event, a circumstance, or a relationship. They place others before themselves. In the Bible, we see lots of acts or heroic acts like David acting in a heroic fashion as he faced Goliath. Esther has, a, for such a time as this moment, that is equally heroic in her story, generation, and time. And Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi is selfless. In its sense, it is preferring others. It's heroic. And in Acts, we see Stephen is the first follower of Jesus who is martyred for his faith. Again, heroic. Heroic in terms of what it is that they do. And so this book, the Bible, it contains plenty of stories where people place others before themselves. But do you know what every story in this book, except for one, has? It has stories of people who situationally or circumstantially place others before themselves. And then if you look at the totality of their lives, it has other parts of their life and story where they fail to do that. There's a way in which you and I can preach David and Goliath, and if you are one who is naturally courageous, you walk out of here like identifying with David. If you are a naturally courageous person, then you walk out of church. There's a way that we can preach David and Goliath where, again, we make David the hero of the story, and if you're naturally courageous, you walk out like, hey, I'm a good Christian. But how many of you know in the story, David's not actually the one who actually defeats Goliath? 
He is the one who God uses to do something that he couldn't do on his own or in his own strength. You may be here today and you're not naturally courageous. The story isn't be more like David. That's not the theme of this book. The book is learn from David. And why do I use David as an example? Well, because profoundly. This book has plenty of stories where people act heroically. But simultaneously, it has stories of courage and cowardice, often in the same person. By reading the Bible, the people, the stories of the people in the Bible, we learn from David's courageously facing Goliath, and we equally learn from his cowardice of not facing his own internal giant of lust. We don't worship David because David is just like us. David is a story that points to what could be, but David is also a familiar story that points to fallenness, and we need someone greater than David. We can engage principles like Esther stepping into her destiny moment, but we also need to see that sometimes Esthers need Mordecai's to remind them of the moment that they're living in. It's not like Esther discovered it on her own. If she was left to her own devices, she would have missed the moment. And sometimes you and I come along and you may not be the hero, but you may be the one that reminds somebody else of the moment that they can't see that they're living in what God is doing. And it's an extraordinary gift as brothers and sisters that you and I can begin to share things like this. Recently, I was in a, having a conversation with someone who experienced woundedness. And the wounding was that they were consistently being compared to others. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but that can be painful. When you're doing the best that you know how to do, and someone says, why don't you be more like so-and-so? Why don't you do it like so-and-so? How come you don't do it? Or how come you don't lead? Or how come you don't, you, know, you don't do it like this? Loved ones, can we just settle it right here? Nobody can be any other place than where they are. And destiny runs right under our feet. And oftentimes you and I cannot see what God is doing a moment because we are so focused on what he didn't do in the past or what we dream for him to do in the future. And there's nothing wrong with looking back and there's nothing wrong with looking forward. But where God is moving and active in your story right now is right under your feet. Well, I don't like what's under my feet. I don't like what's under mine sometimes. But it doesn't mean that God isn't moving and I sat across from this individual and I just asked them a question. And here was the question. In their woundedness as they had been compared to other people unfairly, here's the question that I asked them. What is the gift from God in this moment? What is the gift from God? And at first it was like, I don't like that question. I don't think it's an appropriate question. That was their response. Like, I don't think there's any gift from God. I think people are just being jerks. And I think that God should smite them all. That would be a gift. The follow-up is, what's the gift from God? The gift from God in this situation when you're being compared to others is now you have a path. You can try to please people or you can go down the path of actually saying that God is actually trying to form and fashion your uniqueness in the heat of this adversity. Don't miss the gold and the gift that God is presenting for you. God doesn't expect you to be anyone who else than who you are. He expects you to look more like Jesus over time, but he doesn't have those expectations. The gift is, whose voice are you going to listen to to form and shape your life? This is significant for your story. 
This moment may seem insignificant, but it'll set your life in two different trajectories. One, people-pleasing. The other, God-fearing and God-honoring. Choose wisely, and it was a holy moment. So of all the stories that have heroic moments of people placing themselves before others, there is only one in this book that elevates heroism to another level, and that is Jesus. And here is why. Jesus doesn't only place others before himself. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes our place altogether, and that is profoundly different. Jesus consistently places others before himself in every instance and situation and circumstance, whether it was children or women or men. In a culture that didn't value children, Jesus says, don't you dare, don't you dare stop them from coming to me. You know what Corey was just speaking about? He wasn't speaking just about men. Do you know the model of a man who ministers to kids is Jesus? Well, kids' ministry isn't for me. It was for Jesus. And he was a man. He was a guy. I don't say it for shame. I just simply to say, ministry, whether it's to kids, students, or adults, isn't men or women. It's every one of us being the body of Christ engaged wholeheartedly in the mission that he has for us. But Jesus was profound in the sense that he constantly put his life. He put others before himself, but he did something profound on the cross, and that is that he takes our place altogether, which David couldn't do, Moses couldn't do, Joshua couldn't do, Esther couldn't do, any other name in the Bible couldn't do it because they weren't Jesus. I love how Jackie Hill Perry says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. And if he can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make Jesus the most trustworthy being there ever was? You see, God is holy, so we too must be holy to approach him. And holy means untouched by sin, because to approach him unclean means death. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God promised us a hero or a savior who would come. And the arrival of Jesus ended the system of sacrifice and ritual. So Jesus, untouched by sin, became sin so that you and I might be reconciled to God. There is language in this book that makes me in 2022 uncomfortable. But it's important in this book to be able to see. For God so loves every single one of us. God loves the people of the world. John chapter 3, verse 16, I'm quoting, and you know it. If you've ever seen a football game, you may have seen that sign. For God so loves the people of the world, but this book also says that there's only two states that you and I have before God, as we are friends of God or we are enemies of God. We love to live and say it's a little bit more of the gray, but not this book. It is why Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling what? People who are enemies to God, who want to live life on their own terms, their own beliefs, their own way, everything internal and external towards God, who want to do life without God, enemies towards God. We have come to reconcile them so they could see that God loves them as much as he loves us. This is the ministry that you and I have been given, not to make it harder for people to come to Christ so that people can actually see that he's the Savior and what they need. No other name in the Bible. Every other name, Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs of the faith are inspiring and they are necessary and they are insightful. But they are equally not qualified before God to take our place. 
I love this quote. It says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil allowed Adam and Eve to exercise their free will. Everyone say free will. Every time they walked by the tree and chose not to eat, they could give back. They could say, God, I love you and I trust you until they didn't. And oftentimes as a pastor, I get the question like, well, like, it's not really fair that because Adam and Eve did that, then like now like the rest of us are sinners. Great. In Christ, you're absolutely forgiven. Now you give it a shot. You try to go the whole week with trusting God in all things and not sinning at all. Give it a go. You'll find it's not just an Adam and Eve story. This is not just a two-person story. This is all of our biographies. Every single one of our biographies. Well, when humanity or we exchange God for another, sin enters our story. And that from that moment forward, we see sin and spiritual and physical death, creation under a curse, and humanity with a sinful nature, and each of us having a broken relationship with God. And God loves us so much. He loves us so much. That he gave us the law. And when he gave us the law, he saw that in some instances it it helped to make a society more orderly, but it also created self-righteousness. And then God sent us prophets, and we listened to some we see in the scriptures, and we killed others. And this progressive revelation of God, God working in the midst of the mess of humanity, humanity, finally sends us himself in the person of Jesus, born in dung and straw. Not the way kings we think would come. And it is something we're going to about to enter into in Christmas. And when you think of the conditions in which Jesus was born, it is so prophetic for every heart and life. Nobody comes to God good. Nobody comes to God clean. You may be successful, but you are not holy. None of us, we all come to God in straw and dung. The British have a different expression, but they use language that we're not allowed to use in Canada, and I'm sure you can figure that out. Because this is repeatedly true that God loves each of us and we consistently prove to love ourselves more, God promised humanity a hero, a wounded healer. We see right away in Genesis chapter 3, in the beginning, God, and then there is God, and then we see the story of how sin enters into the world, and the immediate thing that we see is not judgment, but is goodness, it is grace. And the next thing we have is a promise from God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he will bruise your head, the enemy will bruise the head of the Son of God, and you will bruise his heel. And on the cross, excuse me, I reversed that, but on the cross we see that the heel of Jesus was bruised, but the serpent's head took a fatal blow. This is why Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Everyone say, by me. I personalize this stuff sometimes. It was rejected by me which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Oh, how humanity looks for salvation everywhere and anywhere. A quick, quick story. When I was in university my first year, I studied really hard and I got the best grades that I could. B's and C's. So I'm like, well, there are some things called A's, 
I don't know if they exist. I've never seen one. <laughs> B's and C's, the best I could get. But in my second year of university, I was sitting in a lecture, and I had given my life to Jesus, but I was caught in sin and brokenness. And I heard a professor say these words, and something hit my heart, because the professor said them with such authority. They said this, nobody knows you better than you. And at 19 or 20 years old, I can't remember whether I'm about that age, my heart, as someone who had given their lives to Jesus but was far from Jesus, Jesus wasn't far from me, I just kept pushing him away. Do you get what I'm saying? I heard that, and it terrified me. Because I had no idea who I was. Oh, I had some inklings, but I had no idea. And I thought, if I am the sole authority of my life, if that is true, actually what triggered in my heart is, I don't actually believe that that's true. I don't think that's the way I want. I don't see the world that way. So I began to do something in my second year of university that, that I do recommend if you want to do it if you're in university. I don't recommend it if you want to get good grades. I began to, on every essay and exam where there was writing involved, I'd regurgitate my B's and C's responses back to professors, and then I would draw a line, and I'd say, this is what the course has been about, but this is actually what I believe under this line, and I'd like to have a conversation about this. I want to let you know, sometimes your grades go the other way. But here's what I knew in that moment of second year of university where my heart was a mess before God. When I began to listen and I began to hear in psychology about Freud or Pajot where I went into philosophy and I heard about Marx and this one or that one or economics and business and I heard about Keynesian economics. As a 19, 20 year old, something clicked in my head that every source of belief Every theory of belief, excuse me, has a source because they kept naming name after name after name after name after name. And you know what it did? It gave me the courage then to begin to say, if you want me to have faith and trust in education systems and belief systems, in theories of this world involving everything in that life that are just rooted in someone like me, it began to reawaken my heart for faith, my heart for Christ, my heart for a name that is above every single one of those names began to do something on the inside of me that was profound. And sometimes the greatest gift that we can give the next generation is to remind them everything that they believe has a source. What's the source? Is it infallible or is it just somebody's idea of the way in which they think the world should be? Jesus is the name that uh, no one, uh, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Let's talk Ten Commandments. Break one, they're all broken. We're rule breakers. But Jesus had no other gods before Yahweh, made no idol out of a created thing, never misused the name of the Lord. He kept the Sabbath holy, even if it was misunderstood. He honored his father and his mother. He didn't commit murder. He never committed adultery. He never stole. He never gave false testimony, nor did he covet. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 said this about Jesus, that he was a king and he was a son. Not one, not other. He was both. Psalm 15 showed us that he walked blamelessly and he did what is right. Psalm chapter 51 declares that he makes our hearts clean and he restores the joy of our salvation. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says that Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God, that if you want to get the perfect picture of God, look to Jesus. That Jesus is the sum and the substance of all God's promises. 
That if you want to know how Jesus would have tra- or how would Jesus treat this person, what would he do there? What would he do in this instance? You can see in the story how he loves and treats broken people. He loved people in a way that his reputation mattered not. Their salvation mattered more. But it goes further than that. He loved people in such a way that his reputation mattered not. It didn't matter what... Look it. From his virgin conception, the story about his reputation was speculation nonstop. His whole life would have been whispers behind closed doors about who he is. So isn't it amazing to see that he begins to reach out to people that normally wouldn't get you know, someone reaching out to them. Jesus goes further, though. He doesn't only reach out to people ignoring his reputation for the sake of the one, for the sake of the two. He also risks rejection from that person when he says, though you've been now forgiven, though you have been in this moment experienced love, repent of your sin, repent of the thing that you are trusting, and trust in a greater source than sin. Trust in me. It's profound. We often as Christians fall short of the message of love because we reverse it. And that is that we want people to be transformed by the message before they've been touched by love. And some of us in this room only want God to touch people in love, but we are so fearful to actually confront sin. There are some of you in this room who incorrectly believe that God will never make you feel guilty. And I'm here to tell you guilt is a gift from God. When I mess up as a dad, which is a lot, and my kids let me know specifically how I did, you know the first thing I feel? Guilt. You know what guilt provides me with a gift as a dad? Hey, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that you didn't feel love for me in this moment. I'm sorry that you tried to get my attention and I was distracted. I I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Think about the opposite. Think about if you continually wound somebody and they stop telling you what it is that is going on. You know what that is? That's a broken relationship that'll just show up at some point. When it finally breaks is not the breaking point. It broke somewhere before. Like Israel... In the Old Testament, when you and I long for salvation or for redemption or for justice or for holiness or God's presence or unity or wisdom, you know what we're longing for? We're longing for a hero. We're longing for a someone, not just something. Evil is not overcome by more evil. Evil begets more evil. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. Only sacrificial goodness can finally stop evil in its tracks. We do not overcome the evil of history by echoing evil, by playing the game on evil's terms. We overcome by speaking the truth, by blessing the enemy, by enduring the suffering instead of inflicting the suffering. Evil is only defeated when it is outmatched by sacrificial goodness, goodness that is willing to go all the way. Daryl Johnson's words, and I would add, there is only one person in this book who went all of the way, and it's the hero of this book, and it's Jesus. 
We get this picture exclusively from Jesus, not saints, Christ alone. Unlike anyone else, Jesus is the singular, unmatched, and qualified hero of the Bible. And this Jesus said something to me, and he said something to you, that we are both salt and light. But he also said these words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, everyone say in the same way. Here's what Jesus said. Watch, it's so good. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, who is in heaven. Did you catch it? Did you see what Jesus said at the end there? That when people see what you do, and if it has goodness within it, that in that moment you are salt and you're light. Jesus said when he works in and through your life in small ways or significant ways, that when others see what it is that you do or how you live or why you said that or why you did that or whatever it is, when they see your good works, you have an opportunity in that moment. And here's the challenge, I think, facing 2022 Christians. We have the challenge or the opportunity to present Jesus as the hero of our story or ourselves as the hero of our story. I do all these things because I'm an awesome person, even if it's true. No, I do all of these things because I am a graced person. A lamp is hindered when it is covered by a basket and we can simultaneously be in Christ and cover the work Jesus is doing in our lives. And when we cover the work that Jesus is doing in our lives, it has a profound effect on us, but also on others. And for Jesus, the opposite of the same problem is equally an issue. People can see your good works, but if we absorb, make it all about us rather than reflect, which is testify, share, and point others to Jesus, rather than reflect glory towards God, this robs people of seeing what Jesus can do in their story. In a sense, as I just said, we position ourselves, not intentionally, but nevertheless as the hero of our own story. And so each of us has one thing to discern. How do we position Jesus? as the rightful hero in our lives in this moment. And sometimes this means revealing where he is at work, even if it's messy and unfinished. And other times it means actively sharing how he is formed and where you are now flourishing in life. And what is the danger in making ourselves the hero of our story, of our own story? Here's the danger. We are not strong enough to be for others what only Jesus can fulfill. I don't know if you've ever sat in front of somebody who begins to pour out their life circumstance and as they do, you begin to feel overwhelmed. You have no words. Nothing in that moment. Nothing. I've got no advice. There's nothing that I could say except here's what I can do. And it's not a last resort. It is the primary weapon in the arsenal of a follower of Jesus. When I have nothing to say, and maybe I can be empathetic, but I have no advice, it's an overwhelming situation, or it's a situation that I don't know how to respond to, it's an apologetic, I am asked a question that I don't know at all, which can happen at times, especially if it has math or science in it, I have no idea how to respond to those things. You know what I do individually as a pastor when someone begins to share and I begin to feel overwhelmed? 
You know what I begin to do? I don't position myself as the one with advice. Here's what I do. I grab hold of their hands and I say, together, we're going to go to the God who knows what to do in this circumstance. We are going to begin to pray together. You don't need advice from me. You need a word from the Lord. And I'm going to stand with you because where two or more agree is touching anything on earth, it shall be done. Here's what I've begun to have the courage to do. When people who don't know Jesus in my life ask me questions that I don't know, this is what I've begun to do. I say, gosh, I don't know. I'm going to take a moment in this moment and I am going to pray. Is that all right? I'm going to pray and ask God for clarity and wisdom to have this conversation. This is not just a me, you conversation. I believe God is fully present and I begin to pray. And you know what I have found? Not one person who does doesn't know Jesus has ever said to me, I don't want you to pray. What they've, every one of them has said is, yeah, go for it. And here's what I found. The more places that you invite Jesus, the more places he shows up. But the more places that you as a follower of Christ stand there and you're expected to have every answer and to know every rebuttal and every bit of the world, the more you're the hero of the story, you're going to get crushed under the weight of a broken culture. But the more you can accept that we are all broken, yet we can invite Jesus into this place, the more beautiful the healing that you can actually see in life. All the pressure can come off your shoulders when you don't have to be the hero or the savior of the world. You're just the one who points people to who is. And that requires wisdom and discernment, but it's good.